0: would have open your Bibles in front of you once again uh, to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1201 in the New Testament. Our reading earlier was from the entire chapter. This morning, we will be focusing on the first half of that chapter, verses 1 to 9. This evening, if you're able to join us again for worship at 6.30 we will uh, be thinking about the final half of this chapter, verses 10 through 18. So we would love to have you back with us as we wrap up the entire chapter of Hebrews 2 this evening. But this morning, we're beginning in verse 1 and working our way down to verse 9. And in verse 1, you will have noticed that our passage speaks of paying more careful attention. Paying more careful attention. It is difficult, is it not, to pay attention to those things that we want to pay attention to often because we are uh, prone to being distracted and having our attention seized. We know from experience, however, that what we focus our attention on will powerfully shape our daily lives. And it's not just our experience, it's not just the scriptures that point us that way, it's confirmed actually by recent research in social psychology. So a few years ago there was a f- sort of informal experiment that was done relating to attention involving Joshua Bell, a famous violinist whom some of you may know. Bell is usually paid an astounding 1,000 US dollars per minute when he performs on his violin. And yet he agreed to pose, more or less incognito, as a busker, playing his violin just outside the entrance to a Washington, D.C. metro station. So dressed very inconspicuously, Bell stood there during the morning rush of commuters, and he played for 45 minutes on his $3.5 million Stradivarius violin for free. And over that time, over that 45 minutes as commuters rushed by, only a handful of people paused to listen, while over a thousand passed by without noticing or seeming to notice who was playing or what was being played. A small child, wanting to pause and have a glance, was hurried along by his mother on her way, perhaps late to work. One listener right at the end, only one listener out of over a thousand recognized who he was and stayed for the final two minutes and then greeted him and thanked him for playing. Bell came away with a hat full of $32 in coins and small notes. How could this be? Why did so many people ignore this beautiful performance by a world-class musician? How was it that hardly anyone that morning paid attention to Joshua Bell. Well, a reflection on, those, uh, on the experiment by those who were conducting it revealed two primary reasons for that lack of attention. First of all, people, as you might imagine, were so focused on getting to work that they were too distracted to notice the performer. Their distraction really meant that their attention was focused elsewhere, on the meeting they had that day, on how they were going to pay their bills, on whether they were already running late for work. So the natural pressures of the working day held their attention so strongly that they missed the beauty right there beside them. The second reason they reflected had to do with Joshua Bell's appearance. See, normally he'd be dressed in a tuxedo, on the stage, perhaps around the corner in DC at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts with the lights focused upon him. But here, instead, he was wearing only a baseball cap, jeans, an unremarkable shirt, standing against a wall next to some rubbish bins. And that humble appearance in that rather humiliating context for one like him made it so that people didn't notice him. Missed the one who was standing there. Humiliation and distraction are what prevented their attention. Now this morning in our text in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to see those same dynamics at work. That humiliation on the one hand, the humiliation of Jesus, and distraction on the other hand, the pressures that face us in life, threaten together to take our attention away from the Lord Jesus We are in danger of being distracted by both of those things. So if you don't already, as I've asked, would you please have your Bible open there to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look closely uh, at these first nine verses and see that God directs our attention to Jesus, especially in his humiliation. The writer of Hebrews knows that we, like his original listeners, are in danger of missing what are perhaps the most important aspects of the message about Jesus. In fact, some of us might be in danger this morning of missing Jesus altogether. This passage calls out to us to focus our attention, to refocus our attention squarely on the Lord Jesus and him crucified. Verse one, look at it, says this, pay more careful attention to what we have heard. And in fact, as we go on through chapter two and all the details, we'll realize that actually here in one lies the main point, the main exhortation, the primary command of this entire chapter, indeed of the first two chapters of Hebrews is right here. Pay more careful attention to what we have heard lest we should drift away. Let's let's look at that for just a moment. Why is this so important here in verse 1? Well, do you see the little therefore in verse 1? We should pay more careful attention, therefore. What does a therefore do? You might already know this, but you might need reminding that a therefore means what... Comes in verse one is drawing an inference, a consequence from everything that preceded in chapter one. Now, if you were here back in May, uh, we had a time, uh, had a time morning and evening to work our way through Hebrews chapter one. But that's been a while, so let me refresh your memory, if I may. All the reasons given in chapter one are the reasons why. The writer says in chapter 2, verse 1, that we must pay more careful attention. What are those reasons? We'll look back at chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2, God, we're told, has spoken. The God who created all things, the God who made all things, has actually spoken. And he's spoken how? He's spoken in his word, and he has expressed that most clearly, most definitively in his Son, the Lord Jesus Verses 3 to 4 give us further reasons. Because that Jesus in whom God has spoken, after he made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, right there at the end of verse 4, you might recall, emphatic, he inherited a name. He inherited a name that was greater than any other name, greater than any name the angels had inherited. That name was Son, And in verses 5 to 13, a series of Old Testament quotations is piled up by our author in order to drive home the fact that Jesus' name of son, which he has has inherited, means that he is a king as well as a priest. This Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is our king and our priest. He's made propitiation for our sins. He's paid for our sins. He's risen on high, and now he rules from on high as a king and a priest. And so chapter 1 finishes in verse 14 by linking the fact that Jesus, the Son, is the one through whom we receive the inheritance of a great salvation. There is a connection between the name Jesus inherits and the salvation that we inherit through him. Jesus as as God's son and our salvation are intricately linked together according to God's word here in Hebrews. So for all these reasons, in chapter 1, we hit chapter 2, verse 1, and we are told, Pay more careful attention to what you've heard. These things are rich. These things are deep. These things are not all clear and easy, and yet we must pay careful attention to them lest we drift away. Chapter 2 is going to begin to draw out that connection between the Son and our salvation even more clearly. So in 2, 1 to 9, we see two primary sections before us. The first is verses 1 to 4, the second is verses 5 to 9. And in the two sections, we are given two further reasons to pay more careful attention. Do you see them? In verses 2 to 4, we are told that we must pay more careful attention Uh, Because of the comparison and contrast between Jesus and the angels, that continues. We're going to look at that momentarily. And then in verses 5 to 9, Psalm 8, which we just heard read, which we just sang, is applied to Jesus as a further reason why we must pay more careful attention to him. So let's attempt to do that together this morning. Under God. To fix the eyes of our faith more carefully on Jesus. And here's how I'd like to summarize the entire passage this morning for us. It's simply this. Pay more careful attention to Jesus' humiliation for our salvation. Pay more careful attention to Jesus' humiliation for our salvation. Everything that we look at this morning is going to support that as the summary of what God is revealing to us in these 9 verses. We'll begin by looking at the verses uh, uh, at the text verse by verse and then we'll finish briefly by applying this to our lives and our hearts so that we will not be those who are distracted but those who can attend carefully to what the Lord has done for us in Jesus. Because unlike those commuters who passed by Joshua Bell, not realizing what they were missing, we want to be those who pause and who turn and fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus. We want to be those who linger over the sweet message of the gospel. We may have heard it before. We may have heard it many times before. And yet, we're told we need to linger over it. We need to ponder it. We need to pay more careful attention to it. Lest we drift away, we want to be those who pay more careful attention to the glory of Jesus who suffered and died on a cross for us. So let's have a look at the first four verses as we begin. In verse 1, we hit the command that we focused on thus far to pay more careful attention, to intensify, in other words, our focus on Jesus. And that's important. The object of our focus is the entire point here. What should the object of our attention be? Well, look at the middle phrase of verse 1. It begins to be described as the things we have heard. That is, the message of the gospel. Now, in chapter 1, we heard about God's speech through his son Jesus. But here in chapter 2, the things we have heard refers even more specifically to the details about that message that Jesus has both brought and that he embodies. For us in the Gospel, look at verse three. How is that message characterized it 's characterized as a great salvation, such a great salvation, first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him. It is, in other words, that reliable message of the Gospel about Jesus, the one who, being God, became man, lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. For us. That is the great message, the great salvation to which these verses refer. And verses 3 and 4, look at them carefully. What do they remind us about that message of the gospel? They remind us that it is a reliable message. A reliable message on which we can stake our very lives. Repeatedly attested, testified to by eyewitnesses by signs, by miracles, by God's powerful promises and working. It is the gospel that as we open up our New Testaments and read on the pages of the four gospels, the pages of the Acts of the Apostles, it is the gospel that unfolds there, the gospel that really took place in history, the gospel that encompasses all of who Jesus was and what he has done for us. And it is more than simply a nice or exciting story. It's more than simply historical grains of truth with a wishful twist when we get to the resurrection of Jesus. It is historical. It is true. It has been attested to us by many eyewitnesses, by many miraculous signs. It is reliable, and we must stake our lives upon this message of the gospel. It is God's very revelation to us of how it is that he has graciously accomplished salvation, the salvation of sinners by sending his own son into the world. And verse 1 tells us we have got to fix our attention more carefully on that gospel in all its fullness, in all its details. In fact, the great salvation of chapter 2, verse 3 especially in the context here of these verses, including the things that we've heard in verse 1, and in the context of all of Hebrews, the rest of the message of Hebrews, really means the deep and the glorious and the robust doctrine of salvation that is taught in the Scriptures and summarized in our confession and catechisms. Now, some of you might hear the word doctrine and go all prickly, but don't do that. Doctrine simply means, what, what, what does doctrine mean? Doctrine means teaching, doesn't it? Doctrine means teaching. So when we say doctrine, we're talking about what it is that the scriptures teach. And when we talk about our confessional standards in the free church, in this, as a Presbyterian church, we're talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster, Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms as a summary, a faithful summary of what it is that the scriptures teach. That's what we mean when we say the doctrine represented and so as we think about how we might pay more careful attention to the great and deep doctrines of salvation first really holds out a challenge to us this morning it challenges us in many ways it asks us how well do we know our bibles how well do you know the scriptures how well do you know the gospels The details of the Gospels, not just a vague general storyline about Jesus, but the rich detail of four Gospels attesting to this one man who really lived, obeyed, worked miraculous signs, was faithful to the end, even to death on a cross, was raised to new life, ascended on high. How well do you know the details in Acts of the Apostles about what the risen Lord Jesus did in the early church through the power of his spirit, through the preaching of his gospel? Pay more careful attention by reading God's word more carefully. That's one way we can put into practice this command of verse 1. Not to be, not to be puffed up in more knowledge and more, in more pride that we know the scriptures well. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But rather to have our gaze fixed lovingly and clearly on the Lord Jesus as He has been revealed to us in the scriptures. How well do you know the so-called doctrines of grace? The doctrine of salvation. How well do you know the Confession or the Catechisms? Maybe you're someone who has read them often, or maybe you're someone who's never heard of them until this morning. Can I urge you, as one way to apply what we read here in verse 1, to pay more careful attention, that you might just take some time this afternoon or this week to find a copy, whether online or on your shelf at home, of the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And as you do, uh, let me recommend just a a very specific way to pay attention to the very things that Hebrews chapter 2 is directing our gaze towards as we open up those documents which summarize for us the faithful teaching of Scripture. If you open up the Confession, have a look at chapter 8. It's entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. Now, be warned, it's not an easy read. It's not very long, but it's not very easy. It is dense, but it's the denseness of a rich chocolate tort. That's the kind of richness and denseness that you find there as it summarizes the teaching of all the scriptures about Jesus who is our mediator, the very thing Hebrews wants to focus our attention on. Have a look. Work your way through those chapters of uh, uh, those sections, those paragraphs of chapter 8, of the confession, noticing as you do in the footnotes, where in Scripture these things are coming from. And maybe it'll send you back there to dig in afresh and have a fresh look at those passages of Scripture. And as you do, you will be paying more careful attention to the Lord Jesus. Or perhaps the confession's a little bit much. Maybe you're brand new to all of this. So I'd recommend instead for you the shorter catechism. The shorter catechism. Have a look at question 27, which talks about Jesus' humiliation. It's a short answer, but again, it's dense. It is rich. And again, you have to have to also notice the scripture texts from which the answer has been formulated. Those are just simple ways this week that you might want to put into practice the command from God's word here in chapter 1 and begin to pay more careful attention to the richness of what the scriptures teach us about the Lord Jesus, the things we have heard, the great salvation that we have been offered in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Paying more careful attention to the doctrine of salvation here in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 means giving focused attention to how it is that Jesus could ever become our Savior. Have you thought about that? How is it possible? How is it possible that God the Son became a man? We're going to think more about that this evening, by the way, in verses 10 to 18. But if it were not possible, we could not be saved we are taught in the scriptures. We need to pay more careful attention, give more thought to how that's possible so that we can understand and apply that truth to our lives and grow in confidence in our own faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to say that Jesus is my savior, that Jesus is my mediator? or my Redeemer, these big words that Scripture uses and then defines for us, do we understand what Scripture means when it holds those words out before us? Well, whether we do or whether we don't, there is more for all of us to understand and to apply to our hearts as we pay more careful attention to the Lord Jesus. Well, notice, too, before we leave these four verses, the seriousness of the command. Look at verse 1 once again. It's underscored in two ways, isn't it? The first comes just at the end there of verse 1. We are warned of the consequences of being distracted from the things we've heard, of letting our gaze shift away from Jesus to the cares of this life, to anything else. We will drift away. We're in danger of drifting away. Just like a sailor. Imagine a sailor who falls asleep on his watch. And as he sleeps, the boat comes unmoored and drifts out to sea. And they're lost. That is what happens to us as we let our gaze be distracted from the Lord Jesus. We drift away. We drift away in our faith. We drift away in our confidence. We drift away in our perseverance and our conviction of living the Christian life. We're in danger of drifting if we let our attention be distracted from Jesus himself there's another reason isn't there uh, that that we're warned about in verses 2 to 4 and it comes in this comparison and contrast between Jesus and the angels if as verse 2 reminds us the message of the law in the old covenant promised judgment for every violation every disobedience to god's word then how will we possibly be saved if we neglect to listen carefully to the free offer of the gospel that has come to us in the lord jesus do you see how this contrast and comparison is working in verses 2 to 4 why is it that jesus is compared and contrasted to the angels here just as he was in chapter 1 it's not simply an abstract comparison it's not simply, as the heading of your text might have in the NIV or whatever version you use, Jesus' superior angels. Yes, that's true, but that doesn't get at what Hebrews wants us to understand just here. What Hebrews wants us to understand from this comparison and contrast in verses 2 to 4 is that this is the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. Whereas the old covenant given on Mount Sinai in the law to Moses was attended by angels and promises judgment for every sin we commit, Jesus mediates to us a new and better covenant, a covenant of promise, of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness for our sins. We know this is what it's talking about for several reasons here, even though our author is a bit elusive in the way that he speaks about angels. Later in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, the same language of neglecting that we see in these verses is explicitly applied to the law of Moses. Chapter 10, verse 28, the language of ignoring or setting aside the law of Moses. But here, here in chapter 2, Uh, Verse 2, why is it, why doesn't he just say Moses? Why doesn't he just say the Old Covenant? Why does he say angels? Well, his hearers would have understood what he meant, even though we struggle a bit. And let me show you why. Because the angels were there with Moses on Mount Sinai, according to the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, we're told that the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai with tens of thousands of his holy ones, with fire, flaming fire in his right hand. And then in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving a speech before the Sanhedrin, rehearsing God's redemptive acts in the Old Testament. And in verses 38 and 53 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen twice mentions the fact that angels were present with Moses on Sinai. In verse 53, as he concludes his condemnation of those Jews to whom he was speaking... Uh, who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus he he calls them the ones who had received the law of Moses delivered by angels and yet did not keep it likewise in galatians chapter 3:19 paul writes that the law of moses was added by and put in place by angels through an intermediary see the angels were there with moses on Mount Sinai, at the giving of that old covenant, that law which stood condemning all of us as sinners. And what Hebrews chapter 2 says is, don't you get it? Don't you get that if that was reliable, if that law was reliable, if that was serious, if we're meant to pay careful attention to God's holiness and his law, how much more should we pay attention to the message of the gospel given by Jesus, our new covenant mediator? If angels glorious as they are, attended the giving of the law. How much more glorious is Jesus as a new covenant mediator, revealing to us the fact that God will forgive our sins, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sins. That's the point of the comparison and contrast in these verses. So this is the first major reason for verse 1, why we must pay more careful attention To Jesus' humiliation for the sake of our salvation. Because if we don't, verse three says, How shall we escape? How shall we escape? God's word is very clear, brothers and sisters. There is no escape from the final judgment on that last day. Later in chapter nine of this very letter to the Hebrews, we're told that it is appointed once to all people to die, and then the judgment. How will you stand? before the Lord of heaven and earth on that last day of judgment? Will you stand quaking before the judgment of the law given through Moses by angels? Or will you stand confidently embracing the Lord Jesus as that new covenant mediator in who you can find forgiveness of sins and escape the judgment of God and receive his blessing? We must pay more careful attention to Jesus offered to us in the gospel. Well, on to verses 5 to 9. We see yet another reason for paying closer attention to Jesus. And it's just this. We see the Son of God held out to us as Christ crucified. The language of seeing, of contemplating, of considering, of paying attention is rich and important language in Hebrews. If you have a chance to read right through Hebrews this week, and I hope that you might, I want you to pay attention to that language as it recurs. What is it that our gaze is being directed to again and again? What is it that we see with our physical eyes and how does that contrast with what God's word wants us to see with our spiritual eyes of faith? Because the two do not always match. And that's the problem here in verses 5 to 9, is that what we see now before us, the suffering of this life, the persecution that we face once we embrace Christ and try to live the Christian life, the Jesus who in history is known as the one who was crucified on a Roman cross, all of those things we can see with our physical eyes seem to be awfully discouraging, don't they? And they threaten to pull our attention away from what Hebrews wants us to see with the eyes of faith, namely that the crucified Lord Jesus is actually King Jesus, seated on his throne, ruling from heaven. That actually, all of the suffering that we face in this life, all of the challenges to our Christian life just now, are in that King Jesus' hands, that he's sovereign over those. So let's see how these verses are a great encouragement to us as we seek to pay more careful attention to Jesus. Look at verse 8. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus' glory, Hebrews insists, along with the rest of the scriptures, is actually his shame. It's a, it's a great paradox. The paradox of the way God has designed the world to work, the way that he has worked redemption, is that The way to glory is through shame, through suffering, through death. Jesus sets the paradigm. He marks out the trajectory that everyone who follows him must march along. The way to glory is through shame. Though divine, Jesus stooped to become a man. Leaving the joys of heaven, he came to earth to suffer. Though innocent, he died the death deserved by sinners, And all of this suffering, all of this death, led to his glorious enthronement. This, my friends, is what Jesus' humiliation means. We must pay more careful attention to Jesus in his humiliation because it's that suffering, that obedience, that shame, that crucifixion, that death, which is life to us, which is glory to us. In the midst of our own lives, we are so prone to look away from those things. We want a Jesus who's triumphant. We want a Christian life that, frankly, is much easier. And yet, this is what the Lord has called us to. And so, in Hebrews 2, we are told, in order to persevere, in order to have confidence, in order to move forward in the Christian life, pay more careful attention to Jesus in his humiliation. Because it's that humiliation which results in our salvation. Verse 5 continues the contrast, doesn't it, between Jesus the Son and the angels. And at this point, God's word brings out a further paradox. Now, we're not, we don't have time this morning uh, to plumb all of the details of why it is that these verses take over from Psalm 8 so much that they apply straight away to the Lord Jesus. But we'll try, we'll try to understand it just a bit. In the words of Psalm 8, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, who is God, for some reason condescended to be made man and thus became lower than the angels. Why is that and what does Psalm 8 have to do with that? Well, as it's quoted in verse 6, Psalm 8 asks a question, doesn't it? Look at chapter 2, verse 6. It asks a question about man, that is, about humans, men and women, people, and their place in God's plan. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? We sang this earlier, and Psalm 8 goes on in verses 6 to 8 to speak of the dominion that the Lord gave to humans right from the beginning at creation. It's a psalm that calls to mind the creation story about Adam, that first human he was to rule God's creation wisely and in holiness, living in perfect obedience to God's will. And had Adam actually obeyed in that charge given to him by God, he would have been confirmed by God as his king on earth. Adam would have ruled in righteousness over all the beasts, all the birds, all the fish of the sea. And the, neither the earth nor we would have experienced the brokenness And the misery of sin. And yet we know that Adam failed. He failed to obey God's word and his will. He sinned and he was cursed as a result. And that curse lies upon us and upon all creation even to this day. So what does Hebrews 2 do with Psalm 8? It applies it directly to Jesus. It teaches us that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Where Adam was crowned with shame and misery in his disobedience, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he obeyed even through suffering and death. But in order for it to be so, Jesus assumed Adam's nature, our nature. He really was made a little lower than the angels for a time. He took up that task at which Adam had failed so miserably. And because of his willingness to humble himself, look at what verse 8 says the result has become god has made everything subject to his feet and has left nothing outside his control brothers and sisters do you hear that phrase there is nothing outside the control of your lord jesus nothing out of his control pause and consider that for a moment pay attention to that statement for a moment not your job Not your lack of a job, not your boss, not your co-workers, not your family, not your parents, not your children, not your illness, not your health, not your finances, not your struggle with besetting sin. There is nothing, nothing outside the control of the Lord Jesus as a result of His perfect work and humiliation. He is now crowned as King, ruling for us. Do you believe that this morning? Will you focus the attention of your faith on that? And I hope that you will find it an encouragement as you pay careful attention to that, to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Well, we need to finish this morning, and we'll do so by reflecting just briefly on a few other ways we might apply the message of this text to our hearts and to our lives as we leave this place today. What is this grace? What is this grace that is spoken of in verses 8 and 9? The grace that results from Jesus' humiliation. It is a grace that gives us life when we deserve death. It's a grace that brings blessing when what we deserved was curse. It is having our sins completely wiped away by the blood of the Son of God shed on a cross for us. It is the privilege, as we'll see this evening, so please do come back, of being called brothers and sisters of Christ, being part of God's family, It's the honor and the mercy of having access to God anytime, anywhere, through prayer. It is the knowledge that we can enter into his presence freely and with confidence. It's freedom from anxiety, from fear of persecution or death. This is the grace that Jesus offers to us as the result of his work. So how do we do what verse 1 commands? How do we pay more careful attention to Jesus' humiliation for our salvation, First, we must remember that this is a spiritual attention we're talking about. This is more than just mindfulness. Some of you may have heard one of the latest fads in our culture here is to be mindful, by which is usually meant simply relax. Let your mind focus on the moment before you. And as you do so, don't worry about what's past. Don't worry about what's future. Just focus on this moment. Be mindful. My friends, this is much more than mindfulness to which we are called here. This is a spiritual attention to which we are exhorted. It is not all about me and my avoidance of pain or worry. This is about directing our attention to the Lord Jesus and him crucified, mindful of him, mindful of his condescension for us, mindful of his great love for you. That's the kind of mindfulness that we're commanded to have in this text. How do we do this? Well, we do this by embracing Jesus by the means that God has appointed, by reading his word, by praying as we meditate on his word and Quite honestly, friends, we do it by what we're doing just now by gathering together for worship on the Lord's Day, by spending time in spiritual conversation this afternoon, by regathering again this evening, by taking one day each week and saying, We will focus our attention on what the Lord has done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we will put from our minds the worries and the cares and the stresses and the pressures of the rest of our week, and we will let the Lord speak to us these words of love and grace. The Lord's Day is one of the ways that we can pay more careful attention to the Lord Jesus. And finally, we have to remember that this spiritual attention is meant to be focused on Jesus' finished work. It isn't an attention of work. We don't want to make paying attention to Jesus a new kind of work that we're striving to do. Rather, it's the attention of faith. This is even paying attention by God's grace. We need to ask his help because we are so weak, so frail as we try to focus our attention, aren't we? And so as we try to focus that attention, we ask for the Lord's grace. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers of the 16th century, described the perspective Uh, that we are after here in looking at life uh, as being the theology of the cross. We want to put on lenses as we pay attention to Jesus that give us a cross-shaped perspective on our own lives. We want to have the theology of the cross front and center in our lives so that when we see suffering, when we come up against difficulty, we realize that the Lord Jesus has already passed that way and the Lord Jesus is ruling for us, that his work is finished for us. Hebrews will return later to this theme of spiritual attention at the end in chapter 12, verse 2, where we are told, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's yet another way of saying, At the end of this wonderful letter, we must pay more careful attention to Jesus' humiliation for our salvation. May the Lord grant us grace to fix our eyes on our crucified King and to fix our ears on the notes of grace that he proclaims to us. Amen. Let's pray.